Hello, I'm Andrew and welcome to this week's edition of the Black Country Talking News for the 10th of January 2024. Hello and welcome to the Black Country Talking News, brought to you by the sight loss charity Beacons. We're pleased to confirm that the Talking News is now available via Alexa. Once you've enabled the Talking Newspapers skill, all you need to do is play Talking Newspapers and ask for the Black Country Talking News. Our Talking News service is also available via the free Wireless for the Blind app. It can be found on the Beacon Centre website www.beaconvision.org forward slash talking dash news. As a podcast via services such as Apple or Spotify or as a free CD, simply contact Beacon Centre on 01902 We hope you enjoy this week's edition. Recording for you this week, we have myself, Andrew, Nathan, Angela, Ian, Christine, Helen, Mina, Simon, and of course, not forgetting... Flashback Roger. In this week's edition, we hear about the latest update from Beacon. We have the quiz with Mina... Stacked full of innovation and milestone celebration. We have the latest local news for the black country. In an FA Cup special, we have all the football news from Wolves and West Brom. A did you know section from Flashback Roger. The weather for the weekend. And to celebrate World Braille Day. We look at how Braille is still holding its own 200 years on since its invention. A special news bulletin focusing on the closure of Dudley Bus Station to start though with Ian, Christine, but first, Angela. ago we reported how works are due to begin on Dudley Interchange with a plan to create a modern, efficient and sustainable transport hub, improving commuter experience, enhanced station efficiency and better accessibility for everyone. So what's happening? Well, it's important to note that Saturday, January the 13th, 2024 will be the last day of operation for Dudley Bus Station. And from Sunday the 14th of January, all services will transfer to temporary bus stops erected near the current station within the town centre. Where will these new locations be? With information provided to us by the West Midlands Combined Authority, courtesy of Transport for West Midlands, here's Christine and Ian with a helpful list of the temporary bus stops and where the continued services will be running from. For any further queries or to request a map of the temporary bus stops, you can find information at the website dudleyinterchange.commonplace.is or you can contact Transport for West Midlands Customer Services team on 0345 303 6760, option 2, then option 3. The following services will be available from bus stops DY1 to DY5 situated on Tower Street. Starting from the top of Tower Street opposite the former police station, working down towards Dudley College campus respectively. DY1, 2, 2A to Merry Hill. 5, 5A to Kings Winford and Wall Heath. 18 to Merry Hill. 226-226A to Mary Hill Centre. DY2, 
7 to Wollaston, 8 to Wollaston Farm, 19 for Queen Elizabeth Hospital, 25 to Stourbridge. DY3, 6 to Stourbridge. DY4, 2, 2A to Rensness, 8 for Wolverhampton, 81 and 82 to Wolverhampton, X8 also for Wolverhampton. DY5, number 1 to Tettenhall Wood. On the Broadway, the Castle Hill stop will also have a temporary bus stop. DY6 for service number 14 to Foxyards Estate. Across on Ednam Road, either side of the Dudley Cenotaph, shall be stops DY7 and DY8, serving numbers 74 and 87 to Birmingham. And finally, on Priory Road, there shall be temporary bus stops DY9 to DY11, with DY9 opposite Dudley Council House providing services 1111A to Walsall, 126 to Birmingham, 229 for Bilston, DY10 also opposite Dudley Council House, 1212A for Birmingham, 14 to Hales Owen, 14A to Merry Hill, 24 also to Merry Hill, 74A for West Bromwich, X8 to Birmingham, and DY11 next to the former police station, 1717A for Stourbridge, 2727A for Wolverhampton, 223 to Bilston. Up next, we hear from Helen, who, as usual, has our latest Beacon update. Hi, everyone. It's Helen from Beacon and welcome to 2024. I don't know if it's just me, but as I get older, the years seem to go quicker and quicker. So I hope if you've celebrated it, that you've had a lovely Christmas and New Year. And if not, I really hope it's been a time of peace and reflection, particularly on years gone by. There's a lot to catch up on here at Beacon, so let's get straight to it. First up, it's a thank you. Yes, we'd like to say a big thank you to everyone who's been donating their good quality clothing and homeware to our shops after a new year cleanup. We so appreciate your support. Please remember to gift aid your donations to make them worth more. When we sell your items in our shop, we can claim tax relief on the amount they raise. That means if we sell a pair of shoes for £10, we can claim a further £2.50 from the government. Not bad, eh? You can find out when your nearest shop is open to take your donations in on our website, www.beaconvision.org. As it's one of our busiest times of the year for donations, it might be worth calling in advance on 01902-880-111 to check we have the space to take your items. Now, can you put 10 pence a day aside during 2024 to support people living with sight loss? Well, your small change could help us make a big difference as a charity and we would so appreciate your support. Donating 10 pence a day could raise more than £36 for us over the year. You can order your free collection box by calling us on 01902 880 or email support us at beaconvision.org. Next, if you want to do something new this new year, well, why not come along to one of our community activity sessions? We've already held the first meeting of our monthly book club in 2024. And if you'd like to come along to the next session or find out more about any of our other activities, give us a call. 01902-880-111. Now, last this week, hands up who wants to get their New Year's resolution ticked off in January. Definitely me. Now, if you vow to make a difference or do something good for others, well, all you need to do is send a text message. Text January to 70450 
to donate £2 to Beacon and help us ensure that no one has to face sight loss alone in 2024. Texts will cost the donation amount plus one standard rate message and you'll be opting in to hear more from us. If you'd like to donate but don't wish to hear anything else from us, please text January No Info instead. That's it for this week. I'll be back again soon. Bye-bye. Thanks a lot for that update, Helen. Up next, we have another block of local news. The Black Country Festival is among nine cultural and sporting events in the West Midlands set to share £3 million of Commonwealth Games legacy funding, giving an estimated £11.5 million boost to the local economy Almost 700,000 competitors, performers and spectators are expected to attend the events in 2024 and 2025 to celebrate the region's rich and diverse sporting, music and cultural heritage. The West Midlands Combined Authority, WMCA, and the government are supporting the organisers with money from the £70 million Games Underspend, which is being reinvested back into the region. The Black Country Festival, which will take place in July, has been given £365,000. Other events in the Black Country set to benefit include West Midlands Urban Sports, which is taking place in Wolverhampton from September the 6th to the 8th, after it has been awarded a total of £390,000. And £500,000 will also support the Kabaddi World Cup during March 2025 in Wolverhampton. Aldersley Leisure Centre will stage the quarterfinals, while the newly transformed The Halls Wolverhampton will host the semi-finals and final as well as staging the group matches alongside Birmingham, Coventry and Warsaw, Wolverhampton will also host the opening event as the West Midlands becomes the first destination outside of Asia to host the sport's most prestigious tournament. It will feature the world's best Kabaddi players from leading men's and women's teams, including India, Iran and Pakistan. Councillor Bupinda Gakal, Wolverhampton Council's Cabinet Member for Visitor City, expressed his delight that the city will be hosting the 2025 Kabaddi World Cup. We're looking forward to welcoming men's and women's teams from around the globe and hosting the finals, semi-finals and quarter-finals in our city, he said. Events of this scale bring direct and indirect economic benefit and put Wolverhampton firmly on the map as a destination of choice for visitors. Kabaddi is the fastest growing sport in South Asia and the second most popular after cricket. Originating in India some 5,000 years ago, the contact sport sees teams broken down into raiders and blockers with the aim of scoring points by entering opposition territory, tagging an opponent and making it back into their own half without being tackled to the ground. It is now played in more than 50 countries, having grown in stature as a mainstream sport. Residents in Dudley will be asked to pay £3 a month for garden waste collections from April. The proposals will replace the current system where the free fortnightly service running from April to November is supplemented with the option of paying £30 to add six extra collections between December and March. Council bosses have now unveiled plans to charge £36 a year to provide all green waste collections, which will now run all year round. The move is part of measures to offset estimated budget pressures of more than £12 million this year on critical frontline services to protect vulnerable children and adults in the borough. Residents will be able to opt out of the service or order a compost bin at a discounted rate to dispose of food and garden waste. Councillor Damien Caulfield, Dudley Council's Cabinet Member for Highways and Environmental Services, said... Most councils, including our neighbours in Sandwell and Wolverhampton, are already charging to collect green waste. 
Most are charging more than we propose to charge. We know how much people value this service. But in light of the need to try and balance the books to protect frontline services and the most vulnerable in our borough, we now feel we have no option but to follow suit with these proposals. It will equate to £3 a month, and in exchange for that, residents will get more collections as we move the service to all year round. In addition, we will be giving people the opportunity to opt out of green waste collections if they do not wish to pay. Another option is to order a compost bin, which we offer at a hugely discounted rate. We will be doing all we can to ensure the extended and improved service offers excellent value to our residents. Compost bins, which normally retail at £129.99, are available for £89.99, including delivery. For more information or to order, go to dudleyrecycles.org.uk slash composting. The move is part of budget proposals to be discussed at the next meeting of the Council's ruling cabinet on January the 11th. It takes place at Dudley Council House on Priory Road with members of the public welcome to attend. Fly-tipping in Dudley Borough has increased by a whopping 75% according to the latest council statistics. Dudley Council figures show during the first two quarters of this financial year, from April to September 2023, there were 1,425 incidents of fly-tipping across the borough. This compares with 812 from the same period in this previous year, while enforcement actions in the same two periods fell slightly from 229 to 213. The shocking statistics are included in a report for members of the Council's Highways and Environmental Services Select Committee. The report said fly tippers hit Dudley Borough more than 240 times a month. The fly tippers have targeted roads, alleyways and other areas with items ranging from kitchen appliances, black bags, tyres and vehicle parts. The cost to council taxpayers is high. In 2022, the council spent £94,000 clearing up illegal tipping. Between April and September 2023, council officers launched investigations into 133 cases. The Briley Hill Ward was the scene of the highest number of total waste investigations with 18. Dudley's leader, Councillor Patrick Harley, believes the rise in reported incidents is down to people being more willing to report fly-tipping after council publicity campaigns. Councillor Harley said, In the past couple of years, we have been putting in covert cameras to catch them in the act. It is about the public working with us and being vigilant. If we can gather the evidence, we can use it and they will get a hefty fine. Fly tippers face fines from the council of between £75 and £400 or much more if a prosecution goes through the courts. During the second quarter of the financial year, the council carried out 104 fly tip enforcement actions, which included dishing out 13 fixed penalties and 15 legal notices. Councillor Harley said, Our job is to catch as many people as possible. The worst cases go to court and it teaches people a lesson, but it goes back to catching people in the act. Now it's time to test your knowledge, as we have the quiz questions for this edition brought to us by Mina. Hello and welcome to this week's Flashback Quiz. All the answers you need can be found later in Flashback Rogers' Did You Know feature. But for now, these are your questions. Question 
in pantomimes, which character always enter the stage from the left? Question two. What ailment were digestive biscuits originally intended to cure? Question three. In what year was the computer mouse invented? Question four. What material was used to make the first computer mouse? Question five. Which black country company made the glass for the Crystal Palace? And finally, question six. What noun is given to a group of porcupines? I will be back with you later in the show to answer all your questions. But for now, best of luck. Cheers for those questions, Mina. Hmm, I'll get my mind working on them. Up now, however, is another block of local news. Heritage displays and community events will be among the activities to be held to mark the golden anniversary of West Midlands Police. This year marks the 50th anniversary of the force, which was formed on April 1, 1974, due to reorganisation of counties under the Local Government Act 1972, which created the new West Midlands Metropolitan County. For police services, this resulted in the merger of Birmingham City Police, West Midlands Constabulary, Dudley, Walsall, Wolverhampton and Oldbury, Coventry, Solihull, Chelmsley Wood, Sutton Coalfield and Hales Owen. West Midlands Police's Chief Constable Craig Guilford said, This is an incredibly special year for the force, as we not only look back over five decades, but also look forward to the next 50 years. The force has changed drastically over the years and we are very proud of the modern force we have today, with increasing representation of the diverse communities we police. The technological changes have revolutionized policing, particularly in respect of our efficiency and effectiveness to solve crime. In 1974, officers used two-piece radio sets to communicate. Now they have hand-held devices to use wherever they are, which can do everything from viewing images and information on suspects, checking bail or curfew conditions, to running on-the-spot checks on crime suspects, to ensure they're not giving false or misleading information. Huge forensic advances mean that we have moved on from a reliance on fingerprints to sophisticated DNA retrieval techniques, allowing us to detect suspects from the tiniest particles of evidence, giving criminals fewer places to hide than ever. Over the years there have undoubtedly been difficult times, however the force has met each one of these challenges with professionalism and dedication and many of the lessons learnt from these challenges have helped shaped how the force polices today. Our uniforms have changed and our vehicles modernised, but the one key thing we have always been able to rely on has been the support of the community we serve. The contribution the people of the West Midlands have made and continue to make in helping us fight crime and disorder and through the special constabulary, partnerships and the many watch schemes that we operate cannot be underestimated. For that, I give thanks. One thing is clear, whatever the year on the calendar, police officers and staff have shown the kind of loyalty, dedication and passion for serving the communities of the West Midlands that will carry the force forward into the future. West Midlands Police Museum in Steelhouse Lane in Birmingham City Centre will be the focus of many of the celebration events.
a new drive to help Wolverhampton hospital teams get patients home as quickly and safely as possible in order to free up much-needed beds has been launched. Wolverhampton Council's community support team has received additional funding from One Wolverhampton, a place-based partnership of health, social care, voluntary and community organisations. It will enable them to work alongside medical staff to support hospital flow in transporting and taking care of patients over the colder months. The team meets weekly with the Royal Wolverhampton Hospital NHS Trust's hospital social work team at New Cross Hospital to identify patients who are ready to go home but may need some extra support once they get there. Councillor Jaspier Jaspal, the council cabinet member for adults and well-being, said, Quite often a patient might be well enough to go home, but they are concerned about how they are going to cope once they get there. Members of our community support team spend time with patients ready to be discharged, find out if they have any concerns about going home and look at ways in which they can support them. This can be something as simple as arranging for the house to be cleaned, providing meals or doing a weekly shop, to getting the heating fixed or a new mattress for a bed. This not only means that patients can recuperate in the comfort of their own home, it also helps the hospital to free up beds, knowing patients are safe in their home and reduces the risk of people ending up back in hospital. Sean Thomas, the Director of Partnerships for One Wolverhampton, added, Getting our patients home as quickly and safely as possible once they are well enough is so important for both their recovery and in terms of freeing up beds for people who need them. The community support and social work teams do an excellent job at making sure their home is ready for them and any support they need to aid their recovery is put in place. This is key to reducing the risk of them having to come back into hospital. So far, the feedback from patients has been incredibly positive, with one person who received Meals on Wheels for a week after leaving hospital saying, seeing someone each day and having a hot meal really helped when I came back from hospital. The reassurance it offers family members is also really important for their health and well-being with another family member saying, I felt overwhelmed when dad was discharged home, but this really helped as it was one thing less to worry about, she added. More information on the scheme is available at royalwolverhampton.nhs.uk forward slash about dash us forward slash one Wolverhampton. Volunteers are needed to bring forward plans for a museum following the history of Wolverhampton's healthcare. Arts and Heritage volunteers will support the delivery of the £140,000 museum project. The museum, which promises to have fascinating exhibitions and creative community opportunities, will be developed thanks to a grant awarded by the National Lottery Heritage Fund. The Healthcare Heritage Centre project has been pioneered by the Royal Wolverhampton NHS Trust, RWT charity, and the Arts and Heritage Group. A grant of close to £140,000 will enable the delivery of a new programme called Care, Create, Conserve, and will run for 18 months. At its heart will be the creation of Wolverhampton's first healthcare museum and co-creation centre, based in RWT's Health Hub in the Manda Centre. It will feature an exhibition of medical artefacts, photographs and memorabilia from RWT's collection, while healthcare stories will be showcased through four community co-creation projects and a vibrant programme of talks and events. Eleanor Cole, Arts and Heritage Coordinator at RWT, said, This is a wonderful opportunity for volunteers who are passionate about our local heritage to make a real difference through this amazing project. As well as helping to manage the Healthcare Heritage Centre, volunteers will be supported with training in collections care and curation for their own development. They will be giving their time, commitment and enthusiasm to make this project work and we are pleased to be able to give them new skills in return. 
Eleanor said volunteers age 18 and above who enjoy talking to people across all communities and taking on board other suggestions and ideas are being sought. They need to be able to offer at least two shifts each month. It is hoped that new arts and heritage volunteers will be able to start their roles early in the new year. For application details, visit bit.ly forward slash 3 capital R lowercase o capital N capital Z capital U lowercase p. More local news to follow, but now we have another bulletin of practical information and sight loss tips from Pete. If you're struggling with reading and need a magnifier, have you ever considered a video magnifier or sometimes known as a digital magnifier? Well, we can have a range of video magnifiers that you can come in and try. Now, a video magnifier, you can increase or decrease the magnification so you can turn it up a bit or you can turn it up quite a lot to help you read. You can change contrast settings on a video magnifier so you can look at something in true colour or you could change the contrast to black on white or white on black or yellow on black or black on yellow. It's whatever works best for you, so there's a range of combinations there that you can try to find the right one. You can also freeze images on a video magnifier. So let's say there's um, something in your fridge, a piece of some food. You could take a little picture because the angle's a bit difficult to read of it, and then bring the magnifier away and then zoom it up. So if it's something like the sell-by dates or ingredients on food, you can read it comfortably there. So video magnifiers range from small handheld magnifiers you can sit comfortably in an armchair to read with, up to medium-sized ones which are about the size of laptops, and then there's desktop magnifiers with big large 24-inch screens, which really make magnification strong. So if you would like to try a video magnifier to see if that would help you, you're very welcome to. Just call Beacon's Sight Loss Advisors for an appointment. And remember, bring something you struggle to read with you. So if you'd like to try a video magnifier, give us a call on 01902 880 and ask for a sight loss advisor. 01902 880 Up next, let's have another block of local news. Major changes are being proposed about what drivers can do at a notorious junction in the Black Country. If you live or regularly travel through the western side of Wolverhampton, you'll be aware of the Rock Junction, also known to some as simply Tettenhall Lights. Those with a good knowledge of the city's roads will perhaps try to avoid the junction altogether, particularly at peak times. That's because it can add a significant chunk of time onto journeys to work or taking the kids to school. It's one of the worst junctions in Wolverhampton in terms of both congestion and safety. Long queues form on a daily basis along Lower Street and Henwood Road on the approach to the busy Tetnall Road. It has been this way for years, but what to do about it hasn't been clear. The City Council has now put forward a potential solution, but perhaps inevitably it has sparked a backlash. It's a regular occurrence to find yourself in a queue snaking back a long way from the traffic lights, gradually edging forward a small amount every time they go green, or not at all if the junction is blocked. Sometimes it's best avoided altogether by taking alternative routes through smaller, quieter streets nearby. Those without complete knowledge of the area though, including many who pass through on the daily commute, won't know the local cut-throughs, however leaving them with no option but to tackle the junction. 
It's not uncommon to be waiting on either Lower Street or Henwood Road for 15 minutes at peak times as traffic crawls forward at a snail's pace. A major contributing factor to the congestion is vehicles waiting to turn right at the top of the hill either side of Tetnall Road. This is a significant pinch point and results in these vehicles blocking the path of others trying to pass over the hill or turn left. A simple solution might be to just create a separate lane for those turning right. The layout of the junction and surrounding land makes this pretty much impossible, however. Otherwise, you suspect this might have been done years ago. Controversial option favoured by the City Council, then, is to ban right turns altogether. It would be a major change to the way the junction is used, as it would stop drivers turning towards the city centre from Henwood Road and towards Tetnall, South Staffordshire and Shropshire from Lower Street. It would force these drivers to find alternative routes, and that is what is worrying local residents. They foresee an outcome where local roads are turned into rat runs as drivers look for new cut-throughs, and that is the inescapable conclusion of such changes. Their concerns are understandable, but at the same time it's hard not to sympathise with council bosses looking to cut congestion and improve safety at this long problem area. Now then, have you ever wondered why the Rock Junction in Tetnall is called the Rock? When, why and quite how such a route was possibly built? Well, here's Angela and Christine to help us celebrate 200 years of the road that cuts through the rock. It wasn't much fun travelling between Wolverhampton and Albrighton in the early 1800s. It was hazardous in the extreme for passengers, drivers and importantly horses, says historian Roger Jevons. The worst part was Old Hill, the one in five gradient leading to Tetnall's Upper Green. Passengers often had to disembark and walk up the hill, possibly also carrying their luggage while the horses were somehow encouraged to struggle with the empty coach to the top, he says. Descending the hill was equally terrifying, with the coach slipping and sliding. If only it were not for the rock. A 40-foot sandstone cliff which stood in the way of easy progress along the vital artery linking London with the increasingly important port of Holyhead in Anglesey. Today, thousands of people pass through the rock at Tettenhall, Commuters heading into work, drivers heading to and from the M54, children on the way to school, pedestrians heading into the village for some shopping or a bite to eat. Few of them will give a thought to the tremendous feat of engineering, not to mention hard labour, that went into producing the route we all take for granted. It is 200 years since what is effectively the Tettenhall Bypass opened to the public removing the need for the treacherous climb to the top of the village. Technol historian Roger Jevons says travellers faced extreme dangers and difficulties of getting horse-drawn stagecoaches up and down the hill. But finding a safer route not only required a monumental feat of engineering, it was also a major political challenge. The Act of Union between England and Ireland passed in 1801 led to a considerable increase in trade between the two nations and Holyhead became established as a major port. The Act also gave 100 Irish MPs the right to sit in Westminster and the government set about improving the road link between Holyhead and London. A parliamentary committee set up to organise the necessary improvements for the Holyhead Road appointed Thomas Telford as the consulting engineer. The first stage of the project was the 120-mile link between Holyhead and Shrewsbury, including the construction of the Menyai Suspension Bridge. Work began in 1815 and took five years to complete, a remarkable feat when compared with the time taken for infrastructure projects today. Indeed, the entire route to London took just 13 years to build, mostly by men equipped with little more than picks and shovels. The work itself was carried out by 24 separate turnpike trusts, which derived their incomes from charging tolls to travellers. These would prove crucial in deciding the eventual route that the bypass would take. 
When Telford examined the section between Tetnall and Wolverhampton, he decided it best to completely avoid the Tetnall Ridge. Instead, he proposed routing the road through Aldersley to the works. But the chairman of Wolverhampton Turnpike Trust rejected his proposal, saying the Aldersley area was prone to flooding and its waterlogged state would make it difficult to provide a suitable road surface. Telford then submitted an alternative scheme which would involve cutting a tunnel through the ridge leading to Upper Green, but that too was rejected by Wolverhampton Turnpike Trust. Instead, the Trust drew up its own alternative plans which involved blasting a cutting through the rock and then using the rubble to build a hill leading up the road. The scheme also required the replacement of the existing bridge over the Staffordshire-Worcestershire Canal and the adjacent Smesto Brook, leading to the area around it becoming known as New Bridge. Telford was unimpressed, criticising the slope that led up to the rock and the standoff meant that the Trust had to carry out the work on its own without any support from government. The rock cutting began in 1820 and took three years to complete. Roger is in awe at the accomplishments of the men who cut through the 40-foot cliff to build the road. This was long before the days of lorries or mechanical diggers. Mechanical diggers, lorries or machinery, he says. In those days it was just horses, spades, gunpowder for blasting and muscle power. Completing such a feat of engineering was no small task and it was three years before the work was complete. It had also been very expensive and users of the road were made to pay for the convenience in the form of greatly increased tolls. Initially, tolls were collected in a booth at Chapel Ash, but this was abandoned in favour of two gates, one at the area now known as New Bridge and another at Compton. The road was a huge success, enabling the free flow of traffic between London and Holyhead. Even Telford grudgingly accepted that this was at least an improvement on horse-drawn carriages having to struggle up through Old Hill. A short while later, the halfway house was built about a mile up the road, providing overnight accommodation at the halfway point between Holyhead and the capital. A horse-drawn tramway between Wolverhampton and New Bridge opened in 1876, eventually making way for Lorraine electric trams in 1902. The much-improved transport links to the rest of the country, coupled with Wolverhampton's emergence as a manufacturing centre, made Tettenhall an attractive place to live for the well-heeled. Roger Jevons points to the millions of vehicles which have used the road over the past 200 years, from the horse-drawn carriages of the 1820s to the articulated lorries of today, as a vindication of the turnpike trustees, not to mention the workmen who built the road. It is a true testament to the commitment and construction skills of our ancestors, he says. Meanwhile, Old Hill remains exactly the same today, hidden away as if trapped in a time warp. I believe this colossal two-year-long engineering feat, completed 200 years ago this year, was and remains a truly outstanding engineering achievement and is worthy of recognition. An astonishing achievement. You could say a cut above. Up next, it's trivia time, brought to us by Flashback Roger and his Did You Know feature. Take it away, Roger. Hello again everyone, 
Well, I hope that you all had a good Christmas and that you're not too stuffed with too much festive fare. Any road up. In true TV fashion, I thought I'd start 2024 with a few golden nuggets from last year. So, did you know that? There are a few superstitions associated with pantomime. So next time you go to one, look out for the fairy godmother or whichever is the goody, and that character always enters stage right, and the baddie and the dame will always come on from the left, the right representing good and the left evil. Also, the closing lines of the finale are usually in verse and are never spoken in rehearsals. And digestive biscuits were invented to cure an epidemic of flatulence. If 19th century newspapers are to be believed, Victorian gentlemen were martyrs to an epidemic of flatulence. McVitie's is credited with having invented the digestive biscuit as a remedy for the disordered stomachs, when they added baking soda to their recipe to hopefully guard against such windy conditions. And the mouse, one of the most necessary computer peripherals, was introduced to the world by Douglas Engelbart in the 1960s. You'll be surprised to learn that the body and the base of the first mouse was made of wood with metal wheels supporting it to roll back and forth. It had a cord connected to it, which was interpreted as the tail of a mouse, which is why it was renamed the mouse. And to produce a pound of honey, foraging honeybees have to fly a whopping 55,000 miles. That's a lot of honeybees working very hard. Oh, and that's despite the fact that a foraging honeybee visits up to 100 flowers per foraging trip. So no wonder it takes about 556 foraging bees to visit 2 million flowers just to make one pound of honey. And our black country practically built the Crystal Palace in London. The glass and the majority of ironwork for the building that hosted the world famous Grand Exhibition were both made right in the heart of the black country. At the time, the glass sheets used were the largest sheets ever made and were made by Chance Brothers of Smerick. The glass was first blown as a cylinder, then split and rolled flat. 63,000 panes, each 49 by 10 inches, were made in just two weeks and each was handmade. And did you know that a group of porcupines is called a prickle? A group of apes is a shrewdness, it's a business of ferrets, a murder of crows, an obstinacy of buffalo, and a convocation of eagles. There are loads more unexpected ones too, but I think my favourite is the collective noun for a group of clergymen, though I suspect that a vanload of vicars is a jokey one. However, a mass of priests is true, as is, and wait for it, it's a lie of politicians. But of course, I couldn't possibly comment. Well, there you go then, a recap to kick off 2024. So I hope I've not bored you stiff with these reprised items. So I wish you all a happy new year, and I'll go and start my new year's resolution, which of course, is to give up dieting again. So to prove my point, I'll get me a chunk of Christmas cake at a cuppa. ta a bit. Ta-ra! Up now we have to hear what the weather has in store for us. Brought to us, come rain or shine, by our own Sunny Mina. The weather for this week ahead is forecast to remain surprisingly dry with plenty of sunny intervals. However, temperatures are forecast to continue to feel very wintry with a chance of frost overnight. UV levels are expected to remain low. The sunrise and sunset times are 8.10am for the sunrise and 4.30pm for the sunset. Friday 12th of January is forecast to be dry but cloudy. Temperatures are expected to be around 7 degrees and will drop as low as 2 degrees overnight. Moving on and remarkably it looks like the spell of dry weather is set to stay with us for the weekend. With a gentle breeze temperatures will remain cold and 5 degrees on both Saturday and Sunday with Saturday forecast to begin rather misty. This should clear by midday with spells of sunshine expected throughout the remainder of the day. On to next week, where the spell of settled dry weather will continue to dominate once again, with plenty of sunshine to look out for too. 
It is forecast for the clear spell to remain in the region on Monday 15th of January and continue right through to Thursday 18th of January. Temperatures will continue to remain cold at around 4 degrees with a chance of some light drizzle breaking through on Tuesday. So there we have it. Thankfully, a rather settled spell of sunshine to enjoy this week. As always, enjoy the weather. Cheers for that weather update, Mina. Now it's time to find out how our local football teams have been getting on. The magic of the FA Cup is a well-worn cliché, but there is little else in sport quite like the third round. Little that can replicate the sheer otherworldly possibilities. And yet again, it didn't disappoint with former Wolves defender George Elokobi leading National League outfit Maidstone to a sensational FA Cup third round victory over League One Stevenage. And for the old gold, Tommy Doyle's first goal for the club earned 10-man Wolves a replay against Brentford after a hard-fought one-all draw. Wolves were handed a major blow just nine minutes into the game when Joao Gomez was given a straight red card. He caught Christian Norgaard on the Achilles as he went for the ball and the Brentford player had to be substituted off. The decision proved to be very controversial as moments later VAR opted not to intervene when Mikkel Damsgaard caught Wolves' Tommy Doyle on the ankle with a very poor challenge. Referee Tony Harrington did not treat it with the same severity as the Gomez challenge and the lack of consistency clearly infuriated and perplexed Gary O'Neill who could be seen having heated discussions with both the officials and Brentford manager Thomas Frank. Wolves remained organised and compact and to their credit survived fairly well with 10 men, managing to keep Brentford at bay without any major scares. With the game seemingly drifting towards a goalless first half, Brentford eventually took the lead in the 41st minute. A free kick pinged around the box before falling to forward Neil Mopé who slammed the ball into the top corner for the last passage of play of the half. Wolves began the second half brighter and with the introduction of Pedro Neto started to create some decent opportunities. A confident second half display from the 10 men then resulted in a world-class equaliser from an unlikely source. A short corner from substitute Pedro Neto to Belgarde was then played back to Neto who picked out Doyle. The midfielder then feigned to shoot with his right foot, chopped back onto his left and lashed the ball into the top corner from all of 25 yards. An absolute screamer to send the away end into raptures. Wolves were on top following the equaliser and Doyle had another decent effort from distance that seemed to be on target but it hit Jensen in the head and the game was stopped. The hosts did manage to get back into the game and began to dominate possession in search of a winner, but Wolves stood firm defensively. A notable moment came in the 90th minute when academy talent Tawanda Chirewa came on for his senior debut. And there was still time for some VAR controversy, as a coming together between Semedo and Lewis Potter resulted in both players being booked. Despite some suggestions, the Brentford man grabbed Semedo's throat VAR did not intervene. Both sides had chances to win it in the remaining minutes, but had to settle for a draw and the teams will now return to Molyneux with an FA Cup fourth round spot up for grabs. Over at the Hawthorns, it was much more plain sailing for Albion as they dispatched National League Aldershot Town 4-1 on a day to remember for the club's academy. Carlos Corberan had hinted at six of his starters in his pre-match press conference and managed to strike a perfect balance of youth and experience. As striker Darrell Dyke also marked his return to action since a ruptured Achilles last April. There was an eye-catching senior debut for Fenton Hurd, the great bar-born 19-year-old who had been at the club since he was seven years old, who had never previously even been on the bench and was rewarded for fine recent under-21s form. Hurd did travel to Swansea on New Year's Day but wasn't selected. 
The visitors turned around their hosts in a bid to take advantage of the first half by attacking towards the sold-out boisterous away end. In the end, it did anything but. Academy graduate Malcolm, 21, recently recalled from a difficult loan at Cheltenham, had already hit the side netting before the host's seventh-minute lead. It was a wonderful goal, which came down Albion's right flank. Heard and Fellows combined wonderfully for the latter to be sent scampering near the byline. His low cross was typically perfect for the older and experienced head of Chaloba, who was extremely composed to cushion a half volley into the top corner for his first goal in blue and white. It was a lovely goal. To the away end's credit, it didn't silence the travelling shots fans, but the opener took the sting out of the tie. It was one-way traffic and seven minutes later Corberan's side doubled their lead at a canter. This time it was the turn of Malcolm to make no mistake with a cool finish. Fellows flew down the flank at every time of asking and Dyke put himself about. And the returning striker had his big moment just before the half hour. Aldershot struggled to deal with the set pieces all afternoon and a Mowat delivery from the left went uncleared and hit skipper Stuart O'Keefe for Dyke to hammer a thumping finish into the top corner from 10 yards. There was a childlike enthusiasm in his celebration as the low-key home crowd chanted the striker's name. It was a job done by 27 minutes but Albion might have had more in a rampant first half. The second period was a far, far quieter affair. Corberan introduced Akeel Higgins for a debut for Dyke and Harry Whitwell, Leighton Love and Josh Shaw also entered for senior bows. The host's tempo dropped, but all the young additions went looking for the ball. Aldershot huffed and puffed, desperate for a goal for their near 5,000 travelling fans. And to their credit, the shots rewarded their travelling fans with a stoppage time consolation but it was a third round day to remember for Albion's academy with 11 youngsters involved. Now, here come the quiz answers and they're brought to us by Mina. Hello and here are your answers for this week's flashback quiz. Feeling confident? How will you score? Let's see. Question one. In pantomimes, which character always enter the stage from the left? And the answer? Boo hiss. It's the bad thing. Question two. What ailment were digestive biscuits originally intended to cure? And the answer was flatulence. Question three. In what year was the computer mouse invented? And the answer here is 1960. Question 4. What material was used to make the first computer mouse? And the answer here is it was made from wood. Question 5. Which black country company made the glass for the Crystal Palace? And the answer here is chance brothers and finally question six what noun is given to a group of poor capines they're called a pickle did you get them all right if not not to worry as i will be back next week to test you all once again bye for now On a spring morning in 1824, a gaunt 15-year-old blind boy sat opposite the director of the Royal Institute for the Blind Youth in Paris. He requested the director to dictate anything he liked, so that he could demonstrate a method of writing that he had been diligently working on for the last few years. Curious, the director pulled out the first book he could lay his hands on and started dictating. The boy kept punching dots as the director read on. After a few minutes, the boy read out what he had written. 
The director noticed with astonishment the boy read as fast as anybody with sight. He was convinced that the boy had fashioned something which might be quite remarkable. He called students, teachers, everyone to the hall and asked the boy to demonstrate the method. After completion of the demonstration, the students and the blind teachers felt that the boy had indeed come up with something which might alter the way blind people would read and write. The name of the director was Andre Pinier and the name of the 15-year-old blind boy was Louis Braille, the inventor of the most widely accepted method of reading and writing for the blind. 2024 marks the 200th anniversary of Braille and its use is becoming ever more widespread. In an article written and read by Soundings contributors Fiona and Nikki respectively, we take a look at how Braille is being used some 200 years after its invention. Soundings. Features from across the UK. Hello, this is Nikki with an article written by Fiona. In 2024, the Braille tactile reading and writing system will be 200 years old. It has continued to be developed since 15-year-old Louis Braille introduced it to his peers in 1824. Today, Braille is considered a revolutionary invention and has been adapted for use worldwide in languages, symbols, numbers, maths and music, all using Louis Braille's 64 six-dot combinations. Even in the modern digital age, it is holding its own alongside smartphones and modern technology. Now it is making a big impression on our supermarket aisles, as an increasing number of companies and organisations introduce Braille to boost inclusivity for customers with visual impairment. So it seems there is always something new happening with Braille. In February 2022, Tesco was the first major UK supermarket to introduce Braille Valentine's Day cards to help people with visual impairment celebrate the 14th of February with love. The range of accessible cards featured dedications to my husband and my wife and declarations of love with Be Mine and The One I Love. The cards created by Hallmark were produced in collaboration with the Royal National Institute of Blind People, RNIB, and contain varied sensory features, including different feel, texture and pattern work, in addition to the Braille. Following on from that, in 2023, Marks & Spencer introduced another industry first, a Happy Birthday Braille card, one of a group of three new greetings cards. The move follows suggestions from staff members who had assisted blind and partially sighted shoppers. And it's not just the big high street names that are catching on. A sweet shop in Worcester has launched a menu showcasing 200 of their treats in Braille and large fonts. Speaking to the franchiselocal.co.uk website, co-owner of Mr. Sims Old Sweet Shop in Worcester, Michelle Rasdal said, When people come into our shop, they look around in awe, not knowing where to start. We stock over 1,400 different products. It is such a visual experience. We wanted to think of a way to bring that experience to the visually impaired. Michelle isn't alone in providing a more inclusive service to customers. Toronto-based clothes designer Alexa Jovanovic has launched a collection of shirts, dresses and sweaters embroidered with braille messages using crystal pearls. They spell out inspirational phrases such as fashion is for everyone and disabilities do not define us, we define ourselves. While Alexa is not visually impaired herself, her designs are already being embraced. For example, the American Foundation for the Blind placed a 1,000-piece order for its 100-year anniversary. Closer to home, a petition was raised with the UK Parliament in January 2023 proposing that the UK government introduce legislation to require manufacturers to include Braille labelling on all products sold in the UK, including medication. The petition read, Too often the blind and visually impaired have to rely on someone else to read labels in shops 
and choose things for us. We do not want this. We want independence. And in order to have that independence, we need all products clearly labelled in Braille. This should be mandatory under the Equality Act 2010. However, after attracting only 200 signatures, the petition closed on the 11th of July 2023. According to the RNIB, Braille changes lives. It gives thousands of people independence, access to learning and literacy, and gives them the enjoyment of reading. Braille opens doors and makes a difference for blind and partially sighted people. TNF Soundings So that's it for another edition of the Black Country Talking News. A reminder to our CD listeners who have received CDs in padded envelopes that you don't need to send anything back to us. If you have a sight loss tip or someone you would like to wish a happy birthday to, just say hello to. Maybe even a poem or talking book you would like reviewed, then please get in touch with us at the Beacon Centre. Call 01902 880 Email bctn at beaconvision.org or write to us at the Black Country Talking News, Beacon, Wolverhampton Road East, Wolverhampton, WV46AZ. We look forward to hearing from you. Thank you for listening and thank you to all our supporters, donators and volunteers who without their support will be unable to run this free service. Please note the information and views expressed in this recording does not necessarily represent the views of Beacon or Talking News and were accurate at the time of recording. Mentions of goods and services does not imply endorsement and whilst every care is taken to supply accurate information, Beacon and Talking News do not undertake liability for any errors. So it's goodbye from all of us, stay safe, have a good week and we look forward to bringing you next week's edition of the Black Country Talking News. Ta-ra!